So if you want to, actually, you can sit here Emma. probably because you. Yeah. Uh, I can go around. Oh, I'm fine. I don't want to. Yeah, is that all right? Can you hear it on the thing? Can I drink? No, it's fine. They're so expert here, they'll just take everything out. That's great, yeah. This is why we're not doing it in our office, uh, crowded around a little, little thing saying, oh, is that a lorry going past or something <laughs> chinking left and centre? Uh, We'll roll straight into. So we'll talk with you first, say if that's all right, and then Martin will do a little bit on uh, research, and then Emma will finish off on uh, birch box. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, we're live. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> uh, Retail Craft Podcast Number Two. Ian Jindal here in the studio with Jamie. Martin, Sarah, and Emma. So just kicking off, so we have our location. Emma, you are? Um, Emma Herod, editor of Internet Retailing Magazine, as I have been for a few years. A few years, 12, since the very first issue. So Emma's been running our magazine forever. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Tell everyone who you are. So I'm Sarah Stagg and I'm digital director at The Rug Company. The Rug Company. We're going to come straight on to you once Martin has told us who he is. Uh, Yes, so Martin Shaw, head of research at RetailX. Lovely. So Martin is the uh, brains behind the Internet Retailing Top 500, uh, UK, Europe, uh, 250 Australia, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to put him on the spot now that we've let him out of the research dungeon. Uh, Jamie, how are you? Oh, very well, but you also told me you were the brains behind the IR 500. So I'm glad we finally met the the right person. (laughs) Um, So um, I I work at Salesforce and I'm uh, there at Industry Strategy and Insights. For Salesforce. Lovely. Brains, the brains behind it. Well, hey, uh, look, so straight on, Sarah, the rug company. What be the rug company, just in case any of our uh, several listeners who aren't already customers? Yeah, so the rug company is the leading retailer for contemporary luxury rugs. Uh, the clues in the name. But it's um, 20 years old, founded by a husband and wife couple. Its core principles are all around design, quality, craftsmanship and service. Some of the key USPs about the business, one is that it has a lot of designer collaborations with Alexander McQueen, Paul Smith, which are all very beautiful. It's very global, so it's about 50% in the US. We do a lot of B2B business as well as B2C, um, and we do a lot of custom and bespoke work. It's about 50% of our sales mix. Right. Now, I did go and uh, look at your site um, when you started there because I thought, oh, everyone needs a rug. I was slightly taken aback that internet retail isn't quite profitable enough to outfit our offices uh, with your rug. So, I mean, a very high price point. Most people think they get rugs. They're a two-dimensional thing you stick on the floor. So how do you bring these design-led, incredibly expensive, often bespoke things to life via a screen? It's challenging and certainly the business is further behind in its digital journey compared to you know mass market fashion as you'd expect. Homewares is a smaller proportion but as everything is there is a digital transformation underway and people are more open to it and we just have to solve those, those problems and put people more at ease. We know about building out the content to reassure customers about um, the thickness of the carpet, the the look and feel in natural versus artificial light, and really 
um, reassuring them about the service and so they can return it, etc. They can try it at home for free. So there's lots of service things we do to reassure them. More specifically, we know that there are four big challenges to overcome. One is that because it's, B, it's a lot of B2B, it's been very relationship-based. So people have a dedicated salesperson in the store um, and they like having that design expertise on hand. So how do we recreate that online? And we've just launched things like live chat, which really help. And I suppose what we can deliver online that the stores can't is that speed of, of response. And um, so we're really trying to utilize that. We also know that our customers, because of the high price point, are quite used to negotiating and bargaining in the stores. And so the feeling is they don't get the best price online. Which is ironically the opposite of what most other people think about online. Yes, exactly. So we've got the we've got the opposite. But it's good because um, our finance director is thrilled that we're introducing more standardised discounting and, and pricing, but also that we can um, have various loyalty schemes and volume-based and we can work through live chat to talk to people about the pricing. So we're working on that. And then the last piece is because we do a lot of custom work, is how does someone design a bespoke rug know that the colour, as you said, the yarn is going to look the same colour blue in the house, especially if they're spending upwards of £5,000. But there's a lot of things we do now with sending out samples and the other content pieces that we talked about around videos um, and room visualiser software and we will mock up their room for them. So definitely there are challenges, um, particularly with the, the product and the positioning in the market. But I, I don't think, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I don't think all of them um, can be met online. Mm. But it's, it's not just online. I mean, the way you describe it, it's uh, similar to many B2B businesses where you're talking about supply chain, showroom, staff, expertise, custom pricing negotiations so in a way it's sort of back office as much as front foot selling and presentation absolutely front office in terms of the driving the awareness and as you'd expect in any retail business b2c b2b um, but then definitely in terms of the execution is how does online work with a person if it if it's needed to execute that sale, but you need sophisticated systems to deliver that in a you know really effective way. Yeah, and so when um, you're looking at effectiveness and you're chatting with the board and they say you know we love having a chief digital officer, what's the metric that they're looking at you and there are pound signs above your head? What is the thing they're looking at? Is it an individual thing? Is it just sales or is it you know general increase in innovation? How how are you measured on this? Sort of wide-ranging role. I think even in I mean, I'm relatively new to the business, almost a year. The KPIs have changed quite dramatically in in the time I've been there, from predominantly driving brand awareness and driving visits and happy if the sale happens offline, to actually we want to see faster growth online. Can we migrate people there faster? And that would point, you know, to more direct sales conversion. But I still think, you you know, if you ask me the best KPIs and the ones that I'm probably more focused on, it would be much more the kind of the customer metrics. And I suppose bringing awareness to that customer insight, which hasn't really existed as a business, to make sure that that we're answering the, the problems and the challenges and also we're, we're making them happy. 
I've got to say, if you don't mind me coming on there, I actually watched a video, for, very unusually for me, I was doing a bit of research for once and trying to be a professional. <laughs> but anyway, um, and I saw the, one of the, it was IRX conference, I think, in Birmingham earlier on this year, and you had this, you, you mentioned this thing, a sort of debate, that big debate in the company, I've got this buy button now, and the, you know, contact your showroom business, which sounds like a real philosophical debate within your organisation, both because this is the way we used to do it, and this is the way we should be doing it now. How did that resolve itself, or is it still an ongoing discussion? It's well, and this is the big KPI change that's happened since I've been there. So, because of the importance of service and supporting the showrooms, we were very much happy to drive volume and traffic in there and let people, particularly the interior designers who are more traditional in their working methods, go through their digital evolution organically. <laughs> that's and a I, lovely phrase, isn't it? <laughs> and I, yes said it before and I um I suppose now we think that there are ways that um that we could help speed up that process and they could become more aware of the benefits the convenience of online by perhaps not being as organic with the current behaviors if that makes sense mm. it's add to bag and try at home with what the only website I know that has these two high buttons with the same hierarchy mm. on the product page the um try at home button is about to come off so we are really focusing on driving those direct sales. Interesting. Now, innovation has always been one of the words I've associated with you, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of product development you're doing at Debenhams or to great acclaim at House of Fraser, where, you know, you did a lot of the mobile um, stuff that we, we've covered a lot. But reading about the rug company, uh, I was struck by um, an interview with Christopher Sharp, one of the founders, where he was talking about his pride in building a quote-unquote an innovative company and he sees rugs not so much as saying words but very much as part of an innovative approach what does that look like to people who are outside the company where are you seeing innovation so it's very much what you do day to day uh where where can we see that what what is innovative about the way the company works or do you uh you undertaking the digital developments there I think it really manifests itself in the company culture, predominantly seeing how people behave and act mm. rather than the things that they're delivering because I think everyone can be innovative for, in any role. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a digital one. But some of the things that we really look for and behaviours and competencies that I would particularly look for kind of going through a recruitment process would be things like openness, ability and desire to be totally transparent, ability to question, um, be inquisitive, use um, data to answer those questions, flexibility, flexible working, empowerment, some of these types of things that I think if you look at the opposite of them in more traditional organisations, you know, those types of behaviours have been quite conflicting potentially with where expertise and experience you know 50 years experience means the most things mm. and actually if you for us we you know we find you you give an intern google analytics and they can ask and answer a whole bunch of questions that you didn't even know you had mm. so i think yes for, for us certainly it would be about kind of culture and behaviors that's interesting i mean a very positive thing to say in terms of people entering the profession that uh, you know you can always be learning and if you've got the right attitudes and approaches then you know that has a, a big role to play and let me ask you to this is a temptation really so you don't have to uh, go here but uh, if you look in the rearview mirror at let's say either house of phrase or devon's department stores 
which are having a tough time now, but we're big fans of you know the capabilities they've had, their trading approach, and the place they've had in uh, on the high street. So I'm not being negative, but I think now you're in a a smaller, more agile, values-driven luxury business. If you were looking in the rearview mirror at the department stores, what what thing would you, if you like, take back if they poached you back to House of Fraser and said, you know, come and work with us again? What are the things you would take from your current business that you've learned that you'd want to uh, embed or try in a department store to, to make them into a more modern, relevant business? Yeah, I think it's interesting, predominantly because I thought about it the other way around in terms of what have I learned there that's provided really good standing, which I can definitely touch on. Probably the the biggest difference for me and the joy of the new job is working with such a outstanding product. It has a, a whole bunch of unique selling points. It's got a very clear market positioning. It's got a very defined user base. Um, it's got some really clear challenges that we talked about that we've got to answer online. So I think predominantly for me, it's those things that have been more difficult to create in a department store environment. And a lot of the unique positioning that we've driven in my in past roles has been around the service to try and um, really create that reason for visiting those businesses. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that's the beauty of working for, for a unique brand. Those things are very clear. They're well communicated and everyone in the business is very aware of them and working towards the same goals. So I think it's probably all around that in terms of very defined business strategy and objectives mm-hmm. and, and have everyone mobilised towards the same thing. And that's difficult to create in, in large organisations. So that that's probably it. I was interested in the last uh, podcast, uh, we had David Cohn from Heels, and he drew a number of times this distinction between, you know, we're a small business, small business, product leads. And it, it does seem to be, uh, if you like, a change in the landscape between generic retailers who sell lots of other people's products pretty well and the people who own and love the products, maybe at a smaller scale, maybe not. So I think, you know, we're seeing a, like a, a development of a bit of love here for product uh, more than just the formats of retailing. And so, you know, product, you know, is this something that, uh, you know, if you had to draw a balance between being a retailer and being a product company, you know, where would you put yourself on that uh, sort of false false yeah. continuum I've just drawn I like it probably somewhere in the middle just totally sit on the fence of your question <laughs> I think the job of retailing is the challenge is how do you execute the sale I suppose particularly online and I think it's easier to do when you have a really clear product that stands mm. for something but I suppose your job as a retailer is to always bring that out in some way yeah. so probably still more retail um, but I like I like the continuum. Great. Well, you've saved me there from uh, <laughs> one of the worst questions ever uh, in our short history of podcasting. I thought it was quite good. I was about to answer myself. Let's move on. Obviously. Yeah, let's, let's move on. Well, look, um, Sarah, thanks for that. Just before we uh, take you off the hook, when you leave the studio today, what's, what's exciting you about the return to work? What are you working on at the moment? We're doing lots of things, both short term to answer some of these challenges mm. um and i think we're we're re- moving from our kind of branded driven proposition to our direct sales driven proposition is quite a big change in the mindset and and how we execute digitally so there's some big work going on around that 
And then also about what does five years look like for interior designers and how they're working, because it's it's such a transformation and not one that I had experience with, but which is fascinating to me, how people mm. used to traipse around shops with interior designers and now they just have Pinterest boards they share. And yeah. so... Um, yeah, we're really, we're also focused on what does interior design look like in five years? There's some really innovative companies coming out which um, just service clients online. And so I think we're trying to really stay connected to that to that industry. Brilliant. I love, I love the fact, again, that, uh, you know, when you follow from expertise to expertise, you see whole new industries changing in front of our eyes. So thanks, that. but uh, you're staying with us. So thanks, Sarah, temporarily. But we've been talking about performance. So let us uh, switch to Martin. Martin, welcome. You've been beavering away to get our fourth internet retailing European top 500 released. So, mm-hmm. subject to timing, I think it'll just be hitting desks and uh, inboxes as this goes to air. So, what have you been up to and what have you found? Okay, so the Europe Top 500 is a comparative list of metrics and we benchmark the largest 500 retailers in the single market. What we've found over the years, you mentioned we've been doing it for four years, is that there's a continuous level of improvement across the whole industry. We don't actually see um, much in the way of regression. Um, Sometimes we see websites go a little bit slower on average, but then they've introduced a whole host of new features. So generally, it's a story of who's improving faster. For this year, we have six elite companies that we've designated. So we have clusters rather than a defined rank. It's worth saying why that is. So even though we could rank people absolutely one, two, three, four by their turnover, we took a view a couple of years ago uh, to cluster people who are equally excellent but different. So I think one way of looking at it is, you know, if you're a modern heptathlete, uh, you might all be scoring five or 6,000, but one of you is better at long jump than one of the other sports in the, the heptathlon, <laughs> which someone else may may remember. So... Um, if we look at these as the elite, um, are you going to share with us who they are this year? Uh, yes. So we have Apple, Argos, H&M, Ikea, Tesco, and Zara. Wow. So a combination of uh, Scandinavian companies, single brands, and then sneaking in this year, the two new ones for us are um, Tesco and Argos. So two uh, congratulations to them. Um, how come they've uh, managed to elbow out Nike and Boots? Okay, well, as we mentioned, there are hundreds of different metrics that go into this. So so really, it's, it's a combination of performance across the board. And that's the only way a company can get into elite. In terms of Argos, its biggest areas of improvement on our metrics came into the areas of customer experience and also mobile and cross-channel. Mm. For Tesco, it was merchandising and, again, mobile and cross-channel. And it's interesting how we're seeing this when they've been so strong in the past operationally. They've very much built themselves as, you know, companies of scale who can get product to a shop and get it then to the customer. So now we're seeing that experience and mobile direct connection, you know, coming more to the fore, which is exciting. Absolutely. I mean, the Argos thing out of interest. I mean, the, is it the connection, you know, the ongoing connection with Zainsbury's and the ability to use that? Is that what's driving it or is it something else within? 
in terms of its improvement in mobile and cross-channel, the fact that it's had a tie-up with Sainsbury's is, is definitely helping in terms of footprint and availability to the customer. And one of the things we definitely look at is how, from the customer's perspective, how convenient is it for them to do things like collection or like drop-off and, and things which working with other brands uh, can really mm. be assisted and not only just other retailers, but also third-party companies. Because I guess back to your heptathlete analogy, I'm not sure I really want to go there, but anyway, <laughs> you know, other brands that you would mention the boots has dropped out of your top six or whatever number. I mean, I guess they don't have the similar kind of distribution outlets uh, as a business like Argos does. It has the benefit of working with a big partner that's seeing customers daily come in to buy their groceries. So do you think that's maybe what's switched them out? Is that the key feature? Well, Boots did improve in every area as well. So I, I don't think they've uh, lost out in a particular area, not, not in that sense. Mm. It's a very, very difficult to maintain a position in the elite, though we, we do see a, a certain level of consistency. So it's a case that they've got gotten better year on year. It's just that everyone has got more better than them. Yeah, the rate uh, of getting better is the, the rate of betterification has, uh, you know, been um, stronger elsewhere. And I think, you know, this is where it's easy to just say, oh, yes, yeah, so Apple is there again and so on. They've not only stayed as good as they were, mm. but they've managed to maintain their rate of improvement ahead of the market, which, again, I think is a you know, real achievement by the four who've, uh, who've stayed in the elite category. I mean, a lot of people talk about their product being wonderful, and it is, but obviously a lot of people go to their stores and have a great experience in their stores, and yeah. they know pretty much what the product's going to be. So that's not a surprise. What is it also that helps them coming back? And I suspect that's the experience of everything. So they're doing a great job on all fronts. On all fronts, as retailers, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Mentioning retailers, we're seeing a change in the shape of the top 500. So you know, in order to, to draw up the 500, we're monitoring around 17 20,000 companies in total. But of the um, top 500, we're seeing a move towards marketplaces and brands. So tell us maybe a bit more about the composition of the top 500, Martin. Sure. So marketplaces are huge across the single market. We find that of the top 500's unique visit share to websites, they actually receive more than 50%. So they, uh, they they really dominate. Um, and there are only 16 of them in the top 500. Mm. But they... they okay. So 16 destinations take up 50% of all of the traffic to the 500 retail facies. I mean, that's that's quite significant. And, you know, the, the big ones, obviously, Amazon, eBay, but also Allegro, which, um, you know, if you're not a Polish speaker in Poland, you may not have heard of, but yet Allegro as a, as a Polish marketplace features in the top 20 of all the countries we look at. So it's an incredible footprint. It shows, I think, the interconnectedness of uh, commerce on the continent. Yes. And, and what about the brands? How, how are they taking share? The consistent story over the past four years has been more brands entering the top 500. This year we have 108 up from 97 last year. Mm -hmm. And they're responsible for about 20% of unique visits again. So again, if you're a retailer and you think lots of traffic, you know, the pie is growing, even as uh, multi-channel grows, we have 50% going to the marketplaces, 20% going to an increased number of brands, 
on the marketplaces and even if you're a department store, the thing driving a lot of your traffic are brand terms, then we're seeing a bit of a pressure from all sides on traditional retailers whose job used to be to bring brands to the public. The marketplaces and the brands themselves seem to be, you know, taking chunks of the pie. That's definitely true. But the pie is growing, as you mentioned, and the normal retailers in quote-unquote, they are themselves growing online, if not offline. Interesting. And, you know, we've seen, you know, House of Fraser's recent announcement, you know, post-CVA, they're going to focus on some own brand, uh, but slimmed and focused. John Lewis is focusing on uh, own brand. Amazon's bringing out their own own brands in clothing. Uh, you know, so I think we're going to see this interesting thing, you know, going back to our conversation uh, with series that ultimately people want good products delivered well with a good experience of that product and, and of buying it. So I'm, I'm just intrigued to see where the next year or two products will be the focus. Well, it's a good point because, I mean, all the existing brands, as it were, you know, they're up now against some new brands. You know, how are they going to have to evolve? Are they going to have to evolve? Or are these own brands going to be sort of pitched differently? Um, you know, to focus, I mean, you mentioned Amazon, it's easy then to think about quick and, you know, maybe price conscious and all that sort of stuff. And, and maybe it's just about, you know, the excellence, continuing excellence. Mm. We're saying about Apple who are doing a particularly good job ongoing, just focusing, focusing, focusing on all those yeah. things that have kept them where they are. You know, maybe there's room for all these people and, you know, it's a continual defining of your proposition and ensuring that you're backing that up the whole time. Maybe that's where it goes. We we shall see. One of the things that uh, we'll be picking up on later is we're looking at the dynamics within the metrics. So we look at six main performance areas. One of them is operations and logistics. And we saw a very rapid increase in capability, often driven by suppliers, uh, as much as uh, the retailers themselves. But that's slowing down in that everyone's becoming pretty excellent. And the battleground now is much more on the consumer experience, mobile, cross-channel. So, you know, I think one of the things uh, we need to look at is building in some product metrics mm. so we can assess the quality. There's nodding all around. So answers on a postcard, please, about how we can measure the quantum of uh, of product loveliness. Delivery-wise, are we convinced that we're all at the standard and that, that I mean, I think there's quite a big disparity still in the in the market and I don't think it's one of the features that you, you measure and you may not have exact data to share here now, but I mean, I think that's still an area that is, you know, critical because mm. it's just not, it's not equitable. There's too many cases where you go on as a normal shopper and you find it difficult or time-consuming or expensive or all of the above to get what you want. And so I still think there's plenty to go there. And you coined it, I think, at NRF in, in January. Um, ATB wasn't add to basket, it was after the buy, as it were. You know, that is absolutely critical to it still. And I think there's still a load, load of more to go in that area. Yeah, I should have got a trademark on that. Uh, anything else in the uh, research that we should be looking out for when it lands on our desks? Well, you mentioned um, delivery and, and how that's been changing. We have noticed a significant change in... So the UK historically has been really the leader and it still is overall. But what we've seen is a lot of the other markets in Western Europe this year have um, increased the the share of retailers offering things like next day delivery, same day delivery. Mm. But a lot of that, the retailer can't always do it themselves. They are mm. dependent upon logistics partners. Then once the logistics partner does it for you, then they'll turn it on for all your competitors as well. So we've seen these big step changes. It's a bit like, you know, when a market lights up, 
boom, everyone has to use it. Whereas the hand-to-hand tends to be a bit more personal, a bit more company by company. But, you know, we're, we're changing that. Now, uh, Martin, before we let you go back into the uh, <laughs> into the data mines of internet retailing, we've got the Growth 2000 coming up just to keep you busy. What's that about? So beneath the top 500, the, the next 2,000 largest retailers in the UK are something that we have to date sort of had on our radar. We've, we've been tracking their websites, seeing very basic sort of measures. What we're doing now is we're going to do a full assessment of them. Not every metric in the top 500, but a significant number. And what we're going to find out from that is the sort of sectors they belong to, the sort of products they're selling, how they're selling them, mm-hmm. the consumer expectations that they are setting. And the challenge we've given you and the team is to develop metrics that are growth focused. So not necessarily mm. the same as, you know, we'd assess a Tesco buy, but, you know, how are you growing from X to Y? So stock turn availability, range, depth, lead indicators like market presence and awareness. So we've given you quite a, a big list of things to look at there, Martin. Is there a disruption factor? You know, if you, are you disrupting a category or a vertical or something? Maybe change of share. Well, I think this is the time when uh, listeners should uh, reach for their quill pens and postcards <laughs> and uh, drop us a note. Uh, we've got a little bit of time. September, I think we've committed to launch this. So if you've got any great metrics, if you should actually be in the Growth 2000 or want to nominate people, uh, then do drop us a note. Research at Internet Retailing will uh, get to the team. So, Martin, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, you'll be joining us regularly as we go along. And um, do remember, you can see all of the research at internetretailing.net slash research, just to be totally obvious about that, (laughs) if it wasn't already so. Now, let's bring in Emma again. So, Emma, thanks for being with us again. wanted to look at some of the interviews you've been doing in the magazine. Now, in our next episode, episode, we're talking to the guys from uh, Revolution Beauty. So there's a good time to maybe pick up on an interview you did a little while ago with Birchbox. So what did you learn from them? What was uh, what struck you? It's an interesting model. I spoke to Savannah Sachs, who's MD in the UK of Birchbox, and they run a monthly beauty product subscription box where customers are sent X number of sample products each month and they're personalised to the customer, to their skincare regime, what sort of beauty products they like, what sort of makeup they like to have. But it's more than that. They're selling full-size products online as well. So obviously customer likes what they've tried, try it, learn about it online and then obviously come to the website and buy it. But then they're also working with the suppliers who want to test new product to make sure that those products are getting out to the right customers amongst the um, Birchbox subscribers. Mm. So they're sort of disrupting the the beauty market in lots of different ways, in the ways that traditional department stores aren't doing. But then um, one of the big attractions of department stores, maybe I haven't fully understood this, but you know the big beauty areas that people go and they can try a sample or you know, chat to an advisor, be told how beautiful they are, have a makeover. So, you know, departments and beauty have had this combination of temple and experience. Uh, be it Birchbox is now opening physical stores. They're not just an online 
seller? I mean, did uh, Savannah talk at all about their uh, store programme? Um, not in what the plans are, but they had a pop-up store which opened in London before Christmas. And what's interesting about it is whereas if you go into one of the large department stores, the beauty products are all ranged by specific brand. Whereas if you're shopping online, most people will sort of navigate by, oh, I'm looking for a lipstick, this sort of colour, and then might go and look by a certain brand. But their store is laid out like that. So all of the shampoos are together, all of X product are together, all Y product together. And they only have the 100 best products that they sell online in the store. So it is curated then to the marketplace and then... There's also way more on the experience side of things mm. as well. Interesting. So I like that savagery of yeah. cutting off. <laughs> well, actually, I think actually you and I went to a couple of years ago, maybe. Uh, we went to, in January again, at the NRF uh, the year before, we went to we a Birchbox store. We did zip around there. And I actually thought it was a pretty cool thing because there's, there's actually some stuff that I, I had myself. And so I was kind of interested to see it. But what, what is happening in that sector, it feels like, is there's like a sort of almost a... Uh, an arms race with regard to technology and apps and how they're trying to get that experience of exactly what you described, Emma, in the store, you know, makeovers and all that sort of thing, trying to do it in the app. And you actually, it does feel to me pretty lifelike. And so, you know, I guess that they've got a great opportunity alongside others to to really make that a reality. And, you know, and, and then having a physical store there as well to, to complement it seems sensible yeah, to me. I, I was struck by the store manager there, though, which I thought was interesting. Um, when When we visited and sort of uncloaked and said we were just having a mooch around just to see how the store operated. If you remember, their store manager just talked to us incredibly knowledgeably about you know, the stock turns, the margin, the sales per customer, the interaction with online. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, she'd been uh, working as an online merchandiser before moving into stores. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I think back to, Sarah, your point about, you know, bringing these skills no longer looking at channel, but the right attitude, the right analytical capabilities, the right customer focus. I thought that was quite a telling swap, even within the US where they're already pretty customer focused. That blend of digital store analysis service was was quite a potent one. Yeah, I've seen it as well. Uh, uh, Jack Wills, I mean, I went into their Guildford store and uh, I'm probably not their target market. <laughs> but, you know, they had a nice blender there. People who were, you know, extremely commercial, had some technology there to help you find stuff and, you know, not necessarily in the store and all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, it does feel like definitely as a, as a, as a shopper myself, not, not as a person working in retail, but it does feel like there's, you know, that gradual increasing of the bar uh, mm. and, um, you know, all of us are having to, to try and keep up with that. Yeah, I think amping up our staff. Uh, anything else that uh, you, you drew out of your conversation? Yeah, but the company's been going for seven years, so you sort of think of them as a disruptor in a startup, but they've actually been sort of going for that length of time. But what struck me, though, is that you said that Birchbox is loyal to its customers, not its business model. Mm. And that's probably something that should be a big warning to more traditional, longer-standing retailers, because if these agile companies can come in with second, third, fourth mover advantage or whatever you want to call it nowadays and completely change how a product is sold, they can then change mm. how they move again and can be agile to that degree. Yeah, and so it's, it's not the format. They don't define themselves as we are a retailer, we're a direct consumer, we are just about the consumer, yeah. however, uh, and whatever that takes. Yeah, and she said we're a 360-degree retailer that happens to have subscription boxes. 
That's extraordinary. Are they insulating themselves against, um, you know, maybe the subscription business not sort of carrying, carrying on being so popular? I don't know if that's sort of a way of just, you know, enabling them to be adaptable to whatever the customer is. Yeah, I'd have thought so. They were the at the forefront of subscription boxes. I think it was their idea, wasn't it? And um... Yes, they certainly did it and got into our radar first. But uh, yeah. luckily, we'll uh, be able to chat to the Revolution guys next who are in the beauty uh, sector. So I'll defer to their analysis there. But um, it, it is very interesting just closing off this whole integrity and authenticity that's coming out. So we heard it with David talking about their product and the heritage of the Heels brand. We've heard it, Sarah, with you, everything from the product quality and the interaction with your B2B and uh, interior design as well as the customer. And I think yet again, this idea of we stand for something, we're flexible around how we deliver that. I think that's quite an interesting uh, change. So maybe, Martin, an integrity index uh, <laughs> is one to add to your list. Well, look, while we let Martin ponder that, a quick thank you. Time's coming to an end. Emma, Sarah, Martin, Jamie. I think we're done for this episode. Um, press the subscribe button if there's such a thing. I don't know. Or hopefully you're getting this on RSS by now. So we'll be back in a little while with uh, our next guest from Revolution Beauty. But again, thanks for lending us your ears for this episode. And uh, we look forward to the next one. Thanks, guys. That was a laugh. Sarah, I've actually got, sorry, if you don't mind, if I just ask you one more question about the customization side of it. So yeah. do a lot of people use that? Is that is that happening in your product? I, it's, I find it fascinating because my wife, by the way, when I said it yeah. was coming to this, she was like, oh my God, like, yeah. love <laughs> that business. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, over 50% of our sales are custom. Um, wow. So to a, to, a, to a greater degree, that's just size custom. Like, right. I'd actually like a five and a half meter rather than a five by eight. Yeah. Yeah. So size is the most common. Um, that should be very easy to transact online, no problem. Color, you can swap any color out and very key for the interior designers because they all have color schemes and they want that particular teal to match the fair and ball, whatever, light blue. So oh. um, <laughs> so we can swap a color out in a rug, um, no problem. So in that video, that guy in Kathmandu, which you showed in your yeah, RX thing, yeah. so he's, he was measuring up, you know, powders to make colours and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, the dye so master. You were sending him across saying, right, someone wants farro and ball yeah. and duck egg or whatever yeah. it is, and you're kind of having to, he's well, kind we, of do all that stuff. We have a set, we have 6,000 chromatoned, which is a universal POM reference, which is what's wool yarn. Mm. Those are sta industry standards. So there are 6,000 versions of them. So he matches the industry standard. So it isn't... I mean, it's not infinite, although I think we could probably devise a new one. But within the 6,000, there'll be a POM that works for your colour scheme. Which um, is a bit of a challenge for your uh, screen gamut display, yes. isn't it? <laughs> it is, but but we, we send out cards now and we're shortly going to be able to order them on the website. So colour, size um, and shape, so round rugs. Mm. We're about to do uh, irregular shape rugs. Those are very popular. Um, again, that should be relatively easy. And then we do total bespoke. So we do lots of people's works of art. We'll copy it in rug form. And um, that's a total one-off. How about um, World Cup winning captain Harry Kane? Yeah. Can we get him on a rug or not? 
We have, I'm, I know of examples where we have done things like that before. <laughs> it has to be made from a certain type of Guatemalan yak chin beard. Because yeah. <laughs> nothing else would be good enough. You get that quiff right otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't, we probably would do it, but not promote it. <laughs> yeah. If it's a one off, it's a one off. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Hey guys, it's yeah. great. Hey, let's go and grab a coffee. Yeah. That'd be yeah. good. Yeah. Thanks so much. 